This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. In this episode of the ongoing Heidegger and Theology series, we will be listening to a opening lecture by Professor Peter Troni, as well as the opening address by Professor Jane Svenningson. Professor Troni's lecture is dedicated to the topic Heidegger and the myth, and we look closer at the problem of the myth in Heidegger's thinking. For instance, in relation to Bultmann's demythologization and anti-Semitism and the black notebooks. It's my um, great pleasure to welcome you all to this symposium on Heidegger and theology after the black notebooks. Heidegger uh, and theology is not only the heading of this symposium, it is also the title of a very fine book published last um, year by one of our speakers, uh, Judith Wolf, whom you will have the chance to listen to tomorrow. And he's right now, probably somewhere on the. I'm right here. Oh, you're here! Oh, wonderful! <laughs> I was just about to say somewhere on the bridge, uh, uh, on, on your way from, from uh, Copenhagen Airport. Wonderful! Welcome, Judith. Um, thirdly, Heidegger and Theology is also the title of a lecture delivered by Hans Jonas at Drew University in 1964 and later published as an article in the Review of Metaphysics. And I would like to open this symposium by briefly revisiting this lecture by Jonas. Hans Jonas, as most of you may know, was a doctoral student of Heidegger in the 1920s and later became one of the more prominent Jewish philosophers of the 20th century. In the 1960s, when the conference took place, Jonas lived in North America since a decade back and had sworn never to return to the continent, continent that had once expelled him. The story of how Jonas ended up at the conference at Drew University is the story of an accident. The topic of the conference was the problem of non-objectifying thinking and speaking in contemporary theology which in more accessible terms could be translated as the relevance of Heidegger's philosophy for contemporary theology. By the time of the conference, the interest in Heidegger's philosophy was widespread among American Protestant theologians. And originally, Heidegger himself had been invited to give the inaugural lecture at the conference, but had had to withdraw for reasons of health. This was also how Jonas came into the picture. A former student of Heidegger based in America, Jonas seemed to be the perfect candidate to replace Heidegger. Furthermore, Jonas had a considerable knowledge of Christian theology and had even been a student of the great New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann. Bultmann was actually the second supervisor of his um, doctoral thesis. The lecture that Jonas finally delivered is a fascinating document in a number of respects. For one thing, Jonas revealed the extent to which Heidegger's philosophy embodies elements from Christian theology and pointed to how his vocabulary of guilt, care, anxiety, call of conscience, resolution, and authenticity are in fact derivative from a biblical language. Jonas thereby anticipated aspects of Heidegger's thought that were to be debated more widely only in the 1990s, when Heidegger's early phenomenological inquiries of religious life, including his readings of Paul's letters, were made available in the Gesamtausgabe. I'm here thinking of the work of scholars such as um, uh, Theodor Kiesel, John Van Buren, uh, Jean Greisch, uh, and others. But Jonas was not primarily interested in revealing the presence of secularized Christianity in Heidegger's thought, but rather to demonstrate what this meant for theology, especially for those Protestant theologians that so heavily drew on Heidegger's thought. 
Well, first and foremost, it meant that those theologians were in fact re-importing their own original product, re-mythologizing what Heidegger had demythologized, so to speak. Now, if this was the case, then perhaps uh, theologians ought to think a second time and ask themselves what they were in fact re-importing when re-importing their own product in Heideggerian shape. Was there not something important being lost on the way? This question, Jonas made clear, was not for him as a Jewish philosopher to answer, but strictly for the Christian theologian. Nonetheless, he left no one in doubt about his own position on this issue. Pointing to the fundamental incompatibility between Heidegger's fate-laden character of thinking and the biblical view on history and the human being, Jonas challenged the way in which the theologians had let let themselves be seduced by Heidegger's notion of thinking as the self-unveiling history of being itself, thereby downplaying human agency and human responsibility. Jonas's sober but relentless polemic reaches its pinnacle in a longer paragraph where he counters these theologians' adoption of a Heideggerian conceptualization in their approach to the Bible, reducing the biblical texts to a linguistic record uh, of humans' answer to the call of being. And I shall end my relating of Jonas' lecture by quoting this polemic paragraph at length. I quote, Quite consistently, is the Bible, according to these theologians, taken as one linguistic record of such answer, the biblical answer to the word of God. But I find more than human answer in the Bible, taken by its own claim. I hear questions to man, such as these. Adam, where are you? Cain, where is Abel, your brother? This is not the voice of being, This requires more than a linguistic answer. But as to Heidegger's being, it is an occurrence of unveiling, a fate-laden happening happening upon thought. So was the Führer, the call of German destiny under him, an unveiling of something indeed. A call of being, all right, fate-laden in every sense. Neither then nor now, did Heidegger's thought provide a norm by which to decide how to answer such calls, linguistically or otherwise. No norm except death's resolution, the sheer force of being that issues the call. But to to the believer, ever suspicious of this world, death may mean the abyss, force, the prince of this world, as if the devil was not part of the voice of being. Heidegger's own answer is, to the shame of philosophy on record, and, I hope, not forgotten. End of quote. So where do we stand today with regard to Heidegger and theology? Despite the unrelenting critique of Jonas, of Jonas in the 1960s, and despite later wave, waves of critique, for instance, when the critical biographies of Victor Farias and Hugo Off were published in the 1980s, the discipline of theology still owes a great deal to Heidegger, and to a considerable degree continues to work on premises that Heidegger first set out. This is not least the case with the various forms of so-called post-metaphysical theology that has been uh, quite influential in in, um, recent decades. To understand this state of affairs, we need to take a step back and consider the particular era in the history of being. Sorry, that was an interesting slip. In the history of theology that the 20th century has constituted. This was a time when theology was pushed to the margins, both culturally and academically, and influential voices argued that the discipline simply didn't live up to modern modern philosophical standards. In this precarious situation, Heidegger offered recourse, sorry, recourse, with his sense for the radical historicity of all thinking his appreciation for the value of the theopoetic language 
as well as his concern for the aspects of human life that cannot be rationalized, Heidegger opened a pathway for theology at a point where all other philosophical options seem to lead to dead ends. Even Jonas recognized this and commented concisely that Heidegger, I quote, brought to the fore precisely what the philosophical tradition had ignored or withheld. The moment of call over against that of form, of mission over against presence, of being grasped over against surveying, of event over against object, of response over against concept, even the humility of reception over against the pride of autonomous reason, and generally the stance of piety over against the self-assertion of the subject. Unquote. While it is difficult to deny the persisting appeal of Heidegger's thought for theology, the publication of Heidegger's Black Notebooks certainly opens a new chapter in the debate on Heidegger and theology. This symposium is dedicated to this chapter. In the almost two years that have passed since the first volumes were published, debates have been fierce in both media and the academy. Some of the reactions have been rather predictable. Loud, loud voices that have enjoined scholars to once and for all mark a clear distance to Heidegger's oeuvre. Such reactions, in many ways, mirror the present cultural spirit that urges for trigger warnings and censorship whenever something tends to remind us of the parts of our history that we have reason to be, reasons to be less proud of. This symposium is based on the conviction that we do ourselves a disservice when we try to avoid engage, engagement with the problematic or even evil aspects of our past. It is when texts and authorships are being rejected, often for motivated reasons, that we really need to engage with these texts. The new facts revealed by the notebooks are thus not an argument for engaging less with Heidegger, but rather the contrary. And if there is one thing we still can learn from Heidegger, it is precisely his emphasis on our historicity, the critical insight that it is only when we recognize ourselves as part of a historical, historical tradition that we can criticize that tradition without ending up in more subtle forms of repression. The particular, particular aim of this symposium is twofold. <coughs> the first is to ponder the importance of theology for Heidegger. Heidegger himself was deeply influenced by both Catholic and Protestant theology, and it can be asked, for instance, to what extent Christian anti-Jewish motives played a role in Heidegger's own thought. The second aim of this symposium is to explore Heidegger's crucial role for, role for modern theology. Heidegger in many ways salvaged, salvaged theology into the secular era by offering it a new methodological foundation. But what does this mean for the task and identity of theology in light of the notebooks? These and many other questions will be pondered this evening and tomorrow. Before um, introducing our first speaker, uh, let me also express uh, our gratitude to the Bank of Sweden uh, uh, Tercentenary Foundation, as well to Oscar and Signe Krogs Foundation for their generous support of this um, uh, symposium. But now it is my pleasure to introduce you to introduce uh, Professor Peter Travny from uh, Bergische Universität uh, Wuppertal. Uh, Peter is one of the most foremost, I would say, Heidegger scholars in uh, Europe today. Uh, he's the director of the Martin Heidegger Institute, uh, and even more central to the topic of this, uh, this symposium, uh, Peter has been the uh, editor of the Black Notebooks and has also written a well-received and uh, critical study of the notebooks entitled Heidegger und der Mythos der jüdischen Weltverschwörung, and I believe it's already in its uh, third edition. Uh, Peter, uh, warmly welcome. We look forward to listening to you. So, good evening, and 
thank you very much for this for this kind um, invitation and kind introduction um, to this interesting and important um, conference in this small and very beautiful atmospheric Swedish city or town or village I don't know um, it was said already that the publication of the black notebooks without a doubt had a huge impact not only in Heidegger research but also in the publicity in the in the media of course the anti-semitic passages gained the biggest attention but beneath these passages Heidegger's polemic very polemic attacks on Christianity and especially its church were remarked we knew his difficult relation to Christianity and its institution but we did not know to which degree Heidegger could draw this difficulty the question here is obvious is it possible that between this polemic relation to Christianity, as it is expressed in the Black Notebooks, and the anti-Semitism in this very notebooks exists no contact? Or do we necessarily have to be very attentive here? Anti-Semitism is of course not identical with anti-Judaism, but the one and the other rarely go without the other. Heidegger's relation to Christianity and to Christian theology is without a doubt complex, or to say it more critical, confused. The difference between complexity and confusion concerns the organization of the thought. A complex constellation of thoughts presupposes the clarity of the signification of the whole. A confused constellation of thoughts presupposes the lack of a presupposition. Heidegger tried to organize the complexity or confusion by the metaphor of the concept of the way. On this way or these ways Heidegger arrived at a certain place or topos where not only Christianity and philosophy became an alternative, also not Christianity and mythology, not only monotheism and polytheism, but obviously the Old Testament and mythology. This anti-Judaistic figure of thought actually appearing in the Black Notebooks is for me the main problem in my paper here. At its beginning, Heidegger's not only intellectual biography is deeply connected with the Catholicism of the Southwest German province. And who would misconceive, he writes in a text of the later 30s, that on this whole previous way, the confrontation in German Auseinandersetzung with Christianity was a companion, a confrontation which were and is not a, pick, a picked up problem, but conservation of the own most origin of the house of the parents of Heimat and youth and painful liberation from it in one. And he adds, only one who was in this way and rooted in an actual lived Catholic world can guess something of the necessities which affected the previous way of my questioning like subterranean earthquakes. This is um, to be found in the volume Mindfulness or Besinnung. This dramatization of the previous way has a true core. Heidegger's thinking is also coined by an Auseinandersetzung with Christianity there where this Auseinandersetzung not reaches the surface of the text. Hence, the word Auseinandersetzung must be understood literally. 
Heidegger's thinking moves to a place on the margin of Christianity, to an in-between which touches that what is different to Christianity. If the philosopher, in a still unpublished, unpublished manuscript of the Black Notebooks, calls his own thinking Luciferic, Luciferic thinking, then he knows the place of his philosophy. Certainly, Lucifer, the bringer of the light, in Greek, Phosphorus, is the expulsed angel. Interesting that Lucifer translates in the Vulgata the Hebrew Hetel, what stems from the Hebrew Halal, signifying shiny. I don't, cannot speak Hebrew, therefore probably it's, it's not correct pronounced. This leads, we will see, perhaps, or I'm, I'm, I'm sure, to a main problem in Heidegger's consideration of Christianity. We will have to deal with the almost complete absence of the Jewish origin of this religion in Heidegger's thinking. Can this absence be interpreted as accidentally? Or does Heidegger's Auseinandersetzung with Christianity find its peak in a knowingly taken distance to this anti-mythological religion of Judaism, in a knowingly taken distance to a religion of Jewish origin? I will take this question up rather at the end of my paper. However, in the following I will primarily deal with this in-between in reference to Christianity and to this what is different to Christianity. I am interested in these ways on which Heidegger moved repeatedly between Christianity and non-Christianity. I hereby want to signify the non-Christianity as myth or mythology. I know that this signification is problematic because it seems that myth played or still plays a role in Christianity. Uh, we know Christmas. Everybody of us loves Christmas, probably, more or less. Nevertheless, it can be shown that Heidegger decides his thinking at a certain place of its way to myth by understanding it as an alternative to Christianity. This decision, this move, is often interpreted as a resolution to a new paganism. Uh, this is a this is a concept used, for instance, by Jürgen Habermas uh, when he is criticizing the later thinking of, of Heidegger, new paganism. An interpretation presupposing a secularized Christian perspective, of course, only from a secularized uh, Christian perspective one can speak of paganism. So it's a dialectical, of course, a dialectical con connection. Anyhow, this interpretation is correct as it wants to show that Heidegger not only left Christian theology and Christianity, most of all a certain kind, but also opposed himself to it. So it's not only leaving Christianity, but speaking against Christianity. I here want to represent the way from Christianity to mythology in Heidegger's thinking, for arriving at a draft of a problem. This draft or project of a, of a problem is nothing else as the precarious state of this thinking as a whole. With this, I want to deny every dogmatic approach or standard in the interpretation of Heidegger's philosophy, because we really have to deal here with the whole field of ways and not with the philosophical work we can only find pre preliminary solutions of philosophical problems, but not a teachable dogma. In my eyes, this counts a fortiori after the publication of the Black Notebooks, publication of the Black, Note Black Notebooks, which emphasized this provisional character of the whole Heideggerian thinking. The way of the Auseinandersetzung with Christianity and theology is long. One step on it is the important lecture from Marburg in 1928, Phenomenology and Theology. In this lecture, Heidegger deals, roughly spoken, with the difference of a philosophy which understands itself as ontology and Christian theology. This theology is signified as a positive science, where the positivity, the positivität, consists in what Heidegger calls Christlichkeit. I don't know how to translate that. Uh, 
what is Christian in an immediate, not scientific way. Positive means nothing else as that theology has a more or less clearly shaped object. But to dedicate oneself to Christlichkeit, i.e. Um, to be a believing Christ, no philosophy is needed. The positive science of belief needs philosophy only in respect of its epistemological character. Aside from this, for Heidegger, only external and marginal uh, dependency between belief and philosophy is such a deep fissure that he characterizes the specific possibility for existence of belief in opposition to the essential form of existence belonging to philosophy, as you know that all, as the deadly enemy. Note well, Heidegger does not speak of theology itself, but of the facticity of the belief. Belief and philosophy, faith or belief and philosophy, representing such a radical alternative that philosophy does never venture to fight this deadly enemy on any way. Philosophy lets the possibility of existence of belief be by radically differentiating itself from it. Five years later, that's a well-known date, five years later in the notorious rectoral address of the self-assertion of the German university, Heidegger speaks of the possibility that, I quote, our own most Dasein itself stands in front of a great transformation. Because it could be true what the passionately the God-seeking last German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is that. This remark is everything else but rhetoric. With a project to respond to the so-called first beginning of the Greeks, with the, with the other beginning of the, of the Germans, between Christianity and philosophy not only emerges a difference with which both, so to say, can live quite comfortably. Now Christianity is, like in Nietzsche's thinking itself, held responsible for the loss of certain, not only philosophical possibilities of the first beginning. We know Nietzsche's struggle with Christianity as Platonism for the people and Heidegger had the tendency to, I would say, confirm this critical approach, even if he found that it had to be more radical in Nietzsche's thinking itself. It cannot be doubted that Heidegger took Nietzsche's famous aphorism 125 of the gay signs about the madman for Sirius. The death of the Christian God his transformation into a died-off cultural form of Christianity, of culture Christianity, Kulturchristentum, was for Heidegger a historical, a Geschicht, geschichtlich, uh, historical fact. From this perspective, many attacks of Heidegger against Christianity in the Black Notebooks can be understood. In the context of the other beginning, this religion was useless, counterproductive. On the contrary, the idea of a divine creator, of a Schöpfergott, of this accomplice of machination, of Machenschaft, was anything else but initially anfänglich. This God was actually an obstacle for the other beginning. And wasn't it the Old Testament which talked of this creator? It is important to see how Heidegger interprets the bitter recognition of the madman. He thinks for sure of the Christian God. We have murdered him by losing his gospel as a binding structure of our existence. But the Christian God incorporates also something else. For Heidegger, God in Nietzsche's aphorism is, he says, that the name for the realm of the ideas and ideals, for the platonic sphere of the supersensual as such. With the death of the Christian God, i.e. with the loss of this sphere of the supersensual, all moral or ethical criteria of life have become non-credible and unreliable. The absolute criterion for the orientation of all other criteria 
disappeared. Is there still an up and a down? Are we not earing through an infinite nothing? The madman asks. The earing through an infinite nothing is the nihilism. With the death of God, the being historical epoch of nihilism emerges. Heidegger has, like other intellectual of the time, often pointed out that he at first understood Hitler's national revolution as an overcoming of nihilism. In this context, a manifold of movements in his thinking around 933 was characterized as a metapolitics of the historical people, i.e. of the Germans. That's a, that's a, that's a concept uh, of the black notebooks. Uh, well, it, it appears in, in lecture courses of this time, but actually the most important, in my eyes, the most important uh, utterings uh, about this uh, project, metapolitics, metapolitics of the historical people, are to be found in the, in the black notebooks. One of these movements in this, on this field of uh, the metapolitics of, of the historical people witnesses itself in Heidegger's step to Hölderlin, another in a resolute emphasis of the myth. Not only Nietzsche took notice of the loss of the divine in the European world, also Hölderlin spoke of the escape of the gods and, ca and counted Jesus Christ to this plurality. And like Nietzsche, Hölderlin did not cross out the possibility of a return of the divine. It is not exaggerated if we see in this discourse about the death of the Christian God and the return of other gods and especially German discourse, I would say. It was not only initialized by Hölderlin and Nietzsche, but also by uh, Schelling and in the 20th century by poets like Stefan George, Rainer Maria Rilke and even by uh, Ernst Jünger. Heiliger was highly influenced by it and I would say in France, for example, something like uh, this, this discourse did not exist. Uh, well, it would be a question whether in Scandinavia, this uh, discourse was seriously considered or taken as a poetic curiosity. I would claim that today this discourse about uh, well, a possibility of a new God does not exist anymore, probably also because the problem of nihilism is not this cast anymore either, I would say. But it's, I, I, I think that Heidegger belongs really to a, to a discourse here what is, what is a, a German speciality. On the one hand, Heidegger respected the, misses, the message of the madman. The strength and the power of the Christian God consumed itself in the 2,000 years of European history. On the other hand, he did not leave the idea that after the disappearance of God, another divinity could appear once again. Did he not speak in the rectoral address of the, the God-seeking philosopher? The usage of the determined article, the God, shows that Heidegger did not think of the Christian God. In this sense, Hölderlin's narrative of a godless epoch um, as night, in which the gods withdraw just to reappear at a coming morning was for Heidegger path-breaking. But primarily, in the immediate context of the rectoral address, Heidegger tried to use Hölderlin's poetry of the gods metapolitically. By presupposing what he pointed out in the rectoral address, Heidegger understood Hölderlin's verses but if a God appears on heaven and earth and sea, comes our renewing clarity, wenn aber ein Gott erscheint auf Himmel und Erde und Meer, kommt all erneuende Klarheit, in that way that he made dependent the being of a people from an original, and this is the quote by Heidegger, from an originally unitary experience of a back-bonding, back-binding, rückbindung, rückbindung to the gods. In this sense, 
a true appearance or non-appearance of the God in the being of the people from the distress of being and for being is at stake. So Hölderlin should be the founder of the German being because he had to give a new back bonding, back binding, a new religio to the German people. For this backbonding of the people to the gods, a new Bible was needed. For this task, Heidegger had Hölderlin's poetry in mind. This is the other movement, the other step in Heidegger's thinking to myth, or how it is called later, to the mythology of the Ereignis. Of course, that myth stepped into Heidegger's thinking as an alternative can be historically contextualized. Heidegger was by far not the only one who mythologized, who appeared as a philomyth. That's, of course, a term by Aristotle. You know that every philosopher is, is a philomyth. Ernst Bertram, in this time more or less a member of the George Circle, publishes in 1918 his book about Nietzsche with the subtitle Attempt of a Mythology. Ernst Cassira publishes in 1925 the second volume of his philosophy of symbolic forms about the mythical thinking, and in 1929 Walter F. Otto's Gods of Greece appear in 1933, his book about Dionysus with the subtitle Myth and Cult. And surely we may not forget Alfred Rosenberg's Myth of the 20th Century from 1930 after Hitler's My Battle, the second most important book of National Socialism. Heidegger reacted. According to the first, Ernst Bertram, he simply rejected the possibility that this author could say something important about Nietzsche. Cassira's book he interpreted in an important review of 1928. Otto's Dionysos he called a beautiful and valuable book, which of course also could not grasp the decisive metaphysical correlations. And Rosenberg's book... Uh, around he around uh, 1936 called and this is a little bit bizarre the highest completion of an a mythical rational subjectivism and liberalism of the 16th century well Heidegger obviously partout wanted to say something unique even even uh, if it is extremely questionable that Rosenberg, as, uh, that Rosenberg is a, was a representative of, of, of liberalism in, in his very own interpretation, of course. But the genesis, the, the genesis of the Heideggerian, but the, the, the genesis of the Heideggerian understanding of myth or the Heideggerian myth, we could say, does not only run out in the context of these publication publications which in their way reacted to the historical atmosphere by dominating it. As the national revolution was coming, the time was coming to speak of the myth itself. Heidegger does so in his lecture course of the winter 33-34. Uh, the mythos is here separated from the logos. Logos must be understood as a gathering, a sammlung, which is directed to the with and together of beings, mit und zusammen, des Leihenden. Mythos is the word coming to the human being, well, über den Menschen, es kommt über den Menschen, dieses Wort, that where this and that of his whole Dasein, Gesamtdasein, is interpreted, gedeutet. It is not the word in which he renders an account of himself, but the word which gives directive, weisung. Language firstly becomes logos through and with philosophy, but the original logos of philosophy, for Heidegger, as, uh, these are Heidegger words, Heidegger's words, of course, stays connected with the mythos, only the language of science performs the dissolution, the dissolution between mythos and logos. The strategy is obvious. Philosophy is obligated to the logos. Since Socrates and Plato, the philosopher is challenged by a logon didonai by rendering an account 
what we perhaps today could connect with the concept of the argument. To philosophize then means primarily to argue. In contrast to this, the mythos is an interpretation of the whole Dasein, Gesamtdasein, an interpretation which, like a total instruction, overwhelms the human being, an interpretation which primarily is not referring to the argument, but to another kind of speech act, namely to poetry. The opposition or antagonism which is opened up at this place is the one between the argument and the poem, between the argument based on a certain logics and the poem which liberates language from this log logics. But Heidegger even says more. The original logos of philosophy stays connected with the mythos. Therefore, there is a, lo a logos in advance to logics, avant la logique, a logos not opposing to mythos. In this context, two moments may be signified more precisely. Heidegger looks for a logos avant la logique, a, a logos external to logics, because this logos is connected with mythos. One can speak of a mythology, a concept which Heidegger indeed used in his later thinking. This pre-logical logos, what else could be said about it? It refers to the problematic relation between language and being. Since being and time, Heidegger is interested, that's uh, something what concerns the non-objectifying non discourse uh, Heidegger speaks of in his uh, appendix to uh, phenomenology and theology. Since being and time, Heidegger is interested in this problem. If the fundament also of language is an ontology of presence, like we could say in the fact that the Aristotelian hypocaminon became the subject in Roman grammar, then the, langu the language of philosophy can only objectify, i.e. can only may, uh, make uh, propositions about beings, about beings. Being as such, this non-being, this non-objectivity withdraws from this language. Therefore, Heidegger, at the beginning of the 30s, also was interested in a shattering of logics, Erschütterung der Logik, which should have been then in itself a, sh a shattering of grammar. <clears throat> it is simple to show how these thoughts led directly into the context of the so-called history of being. The human being was disappropriated from the original logos, which remained in a connection with mythos in this very moment when philosophy or metaphysics discovered logics. This was, of course, the case in the Platonic and even more in the Aristotelian thinking. But careful, if I explain the problem in this way, am I still in a philosophizing as arguing, or did I already leave this kind of philosophy for the sake of a history or of a story which repeats Heidegger's great narrative, Heidegger's mythology. Mythology. When I earlier, when I earlier lo located Heidegger's interest in the historical context from Bertram to Rosenberg, I did not speak of Schelling's concept of a philosophy of mythology. Heidegger rarely referred to it. At the beginning of the review of the second book of Cassirer's philosophy of symbolic forms, it emerges one time. Heidegger quotes something. Schelling's mythology must be understood within the context of his speculative metaphysics. Cassirer walks a different way. For Heidegger, the myth is understood by Schelling as a destiny of a people, as an objective process to which Dasein itself is subordinated, against which itself can become free, but never in a way that it could reject myth from itself. Indeed, Schelling, in his, in his uh, historical critical introduction to the philosophy of mythology from 1842, posed the question, what is a people? What renders a group of human beings to a people? Schelling wanted to exclude undisputedly the mere spatial coexistence of a bigger or smaller number of physically similar individuals of physisch gleichartiger in, uh, gleichartigen Individuen. Uh, that's a quote of Schelling, of course. A people is rather given their folk, where between these physically similar individuals, a community of consciousness is existing. This community, says Schelling, has in the common language only its immediate expression. 
A common language is therefore only a necessary but not a sufficient condition for the genesis of a people. The community of the consciousness of a people is mediated within Schelling's words, a common worldview, Weltansicht, with he discovers most concretely in its origin, in its mythology. Therefore, he concludes that it is, in the words of Schelling, unthinkable that a people is without mythology. The differentiations are interesting. Schelling does not deny that a people is presupposing a physical similarity. This, this is, of course, the origin of uh, racism, but uh, that's not the topic here. But he doubts that this similarity could build the fundament of a community of the people. This can only be realized by a mythology. In this sense, Schelling describes rather exact what Heidegger approximately one century later attempted to perform, the grounding, gründung of the German people on a myth or on a mythology. We skip here, of course, the huge differences between Schelling's and later thought and Heidegger's philosophy. But I have to be careful again. It would not be sufficient if I would understand the genesis of the Heideggerian access to myth of the Heideggerian myth of the history of being only as a response to the National Revolution. When Heidegger one time, uh, the National Revolution, it, is, it was called in this time <laughs> itself, it's not my, of course, not my, my, uh, my concept. When Heidegger one time against uh, the end of the 30s or even later interpreting his own thinking writes, from hermeneutics of Dasein to mythology of the Ereignis, then it becomes clear that he did the step to myth or to mythology because of, in itself, mythological reasons. The mythology of the Ereignis speaks of the Ereignis mythologically, because the Ereignis itself rendered this reflective relation possible. Now philosophy shall be philo-onto-mythology. In this philo-onto-mythology, Christianity and its theology have no place, or, to be more exact, they have their place in the realm of metaphysics. Already in his lecture course about St. Paul, Heidegger emphasized that the original Christendom, Urchristentum, is totally different to the ontologized theology of the Church Fathers and the medieval scholasticism. Well, thus the later Heidegger once claimed that if he would write a theology, he would renounce the use of the concept of being. That's, in my view, a connection to this early lecture course. At the same time, Heidegger apparently shifts the monotheistic discourse of Christianity to a polytheistic discourse of a divinity or divinities to come. The discourse of the gods needs an explanation. Hölderlin in his poems refers to forms and names of gods and demigods who are well known by the ancient myths of uh, European history. Most of all, the Greek gods and demigods like Apollon, Dionysus, and Heracles, and also, by the way, Jesus Christ, the unique one, are celebrated in his hymns. For the poet, they are now dead objects of a humanistic education, but living entities in the context of a mythology with an experienced actuality. But in Hölderlin's poetry, there are not only these common names of the beginning of European history. Thus, he sometimes simply speaks of the father or of a very mysterious figure of the god of the gods and the prince of the feast. They cannot, be, uh, they cannot be identified in the canon of the familiar names of the gods. Heidegger does not directly refer to Hölderlin's characterization of these gods. In the contributions to philosophy, Heidegger touches the problem of polytheism. The usage of the plural form gods shall not claim the presence of a manifold against a single one, rather an indecisiveness, he says. Indecisive should be whether once again there could be a presence of gods or of a god. 
there should be an openness for the question how the gods or the god should appear. But indecisiveness should not represent an empty possibility, he says. From indecisiveness should come the decision whether an epiphany of the divine could happen again or not. It is then rather remarkable that Heidegger did not hold on to this indecisiveness. He himself, like the poet, performed the decision and increased the narrative of the history of being. If Hölderling announces the appearance of the coming God in Bread and Wine, then Heidegger seems to have adopted this announcement in his thinking. At the end of the introduction of mindfulness, Sinnung, which as unfolding of the history of being belongs to the neighborhood of the contributions, the philosopher insinuates that an unique service of the yet not appeared but announced God belongs to the event of the truth of being, of the clearing of the self-concealment, which has to be grounded by the human being as Dasein. This God is, Heidegger unfolds this not only in the contribution, you know that, the last God, the last God. He was announced in the poetry of Hölderlin. This does not mean that Heidegger cannot speak of him in terms without any reference to the poet. On the contrary, the mythological entity of the last God is very problematically to grasp. Heidegger speaks of him without inscribing him clearly in a familiar theological context. This led to the consequence that philological interpreters connected certain formulations like, for example, the passage or passing along of the last God, the Vorbeigang des letzten Gottes, with biblical texts, uh, the second book of Mose. What is a normal, what is normally possible, but in this case, in my eyes, uh, absurd. Well, it's a, it's a normal hermeneutic tradition to to take uh, unknown uh, thoughts and compare them with known thoughts. But in this sense, um, I would say it is absurd. Heidegger speaks of the last God as the totally other against these who has been, especially against the Christian one. That's, these are the words of Heidegger. The blasphemic character of this discourse has to be taken into account, I think. Maybe the determination that this God is the last gives a hint. In the being historical epoch of the abandonment of being, the opening of a totally different time-space, the words of Heidegger, can only be initialized by a God. The intertwining between being the last and an opening, the thought that a final time breaks out into an advent, into a pausia, is well known from the Christian eschatology. The eschaton is the most extreme or the latest moment of a time-spatial determination. At the end of all times, God reveals once again to judge mankind. But Heidegger speaks of an eschatology of being. Being itself is, as uh, he says, as a destinal, geschicklich, a destinal one, in itself eschatological. The Christian idea of the last revelation at the end of time is therefore deduced from the original eschatology of being. This move is, of course, or seems to be, of course, very clever. But does it convince? Can we really say that Jewish messianism and Christian eschatology are less original than the eschatology of being? The same with the last God. If we would investigate the formulation uh, used by Heidegger, the formulations used by Heidegger in talking about the last God, we would surely see similarity with Neoplatonism and thus negative theology. Of course, the fundament for all history for Heidegger is being itself. But if Heidegger deduces, for instance, Christian eschatology from an eschatolo eschatology of being, does he not take being itself uh, as external to history. The so-called Spiegelgespräch is a document which confirms that the mythological idea of the last God belongs to an eschatological narrative. There Heidegger speaks out the famous words, philosophy will not cause an immediate modification of the actual status quo of the world. 
This counts not only for philosophy, but for all mere human thinking and acting, Sinn und Trachten. Only a God can save us. Again, Heidegger uses in his discourse about God an article. Perhaps it would be too easy to claim that he thinks of the last God. Nevertheless, the scenario is similar to what Heidegger pictures in the con contributions. The actual status quo of the world is dominated by the, by the abandonment and obliviousness of being. Every modification is impossible because all actions could only confirm this status quo. Therefore, only salvation could happen. Once again, Heidegger touches the revolutionary core of his thinking while charging it by an excess of the drama with the theo-narrative event of a salvation. If Heidegger's biographical beginning in Meskirch was, as he himself once wrote, connected with the Catholic enchantment of the scent of fear and lights, then his later thinking is influenced by a different enchantment. The question is how the theological discourse will interpret this different enchantment of gods in the mythology of the Ereignis. One time Heidegger emphasized, emphasized his anti Christendom, anti-Christentum, his own anti-Christentum. The opportunity to, to this seemed to be Bultmann's concept of the demythologization, that it doesn't exist in English, entmythologisierung of what is Christian. Obviously Heidegger thinks that Bultmann, when he found this concept, was influenced by himself. He asks, who does not recognize there the phenomenological destruction of philosophy to the history of being, uh, in being and time, who does not see the transfer to the theology of the New Testament? Heidegger interprets Bultmann's demythologization as a form of phenomenological destruction, what I guess is a possible interpretation. The confession of the anti-Christendom follows more casually. He is not a Christian, he says, because he does not have, spoken in a Christian way, the grace, a statement presupposing the possibility that one can know whether he has or has not the grace. Heidegger's decision uh, for philosophy, that, that's a passage in the Black Notebooks, Heidegger's decision for philosophy was at the same time a decision against theology. One can think that the transformation of philosophy into modern science was a nearly unbearable event for Heidegger. The transformation of theology would have been for him merely impossible. Belief stood for a radical, untouchable alternative to thinking. It remained the deadly enemy, the deadly enemy not only for philosophy, by the way, but also for the mythology of the Ereignis. Therefore, We cannot only understand Heidegger's anti-Christendom, anti-Christianity, as a humble reserve to belief and grace. In the Anmerkung 4, one of the black notebooks from the 40s, Heidegger remarks that Jehovah is <coughs> that special God who presumed to make himself to the chosen God and not to tolerate other gods beneath himself. Thus he asks, what is a God who forces himself up against the other? In every case, he is never the God as such. Presuppose that such an idea, das gemeint, he says, could ever be divine. The concept, of a, the concept of a chosen God is, of course, not unproblematic because it reminds the concept of the chosen people. We see that the indecisiveness between mono and polytheism which is emphasized in the contributions is left here he decides Heidegger decides and he says the modern systems of total dictatorship stem from the Jewish Christian monotheism once again Heidegger repeats his anti-semitic strategy to turn around or to level out the dual-victim relation between the Germans and the Jews. The Jewish-Christian monotheism, Jehovah, who forces himself up to the chosen God, betrays the manifold of the gods to prepare the modern systems of total dictatorship. <coughs> 
but did the anti-Roman, anti-confessional, anti-universal, universal, and of course anti-Semitic National Socialism not have a huge attract attraction, especially for those poets, thinkers, artists, and composers who preferred the gods and criticized the Jewish-Christian understanding of the one God? Did not Heidegger's anti-Christendom fit perfectly in the national socialistic anti-Christendom? I'm coming to my end. Heidegger's Auseinandersetzung with Christianity and the related appearance of an in-between between a post-Christian mythological discourse about a still-coming divinity may be interpreted in the singular or in the plural is the trace of a thinking which is unable and unwilling to give up the theological question. Therefore, Heidegger's self-interpretation that the origin bears in itself the future, Herkunft seit Zukunft, is not wrong. Presupposed, we understand that this phrase cannot be interpreted in the conservative sense that Heidegger thought of a comeback of Christianity. He never revoked his interpretation of the saying of the madman. Finally, I want to lay an accent on two problems in which I see the need of a further interpretation. The first concerns... Heidegger's metapolitical confiscation of Hölderlin's poetry, the second, the identification of the Jewish-Christian monotheism as the origin of the modern systems of total dictatorship. In Heidegger's texts, the metapolitics of the historical people, i.e. of the German people, seems to play only a minor role. With this project, he announces around 1933 the demolition of philosophy. Very much in the style of a revolutionary, he wants to replace philosophy slash metaphysics by metapolitics. In the framework of this metapolitics, Heidegger thought of a foundation, Stiftung, of a new binding back, a new, new religio of the Germans. Is this the step, one could ask, to the problem of political theology in Heidegger's philosophy? Could we count then Heidegger to the very interesting discourse of political theology from Benjamin to Schmidt? Only the following. If we understand Schmidt's concept of political theology, sensu stricto, if this concept is interpreted within Schmidt's thinking, then there is no political theology in Heidegger's philosophy. Anyway, more decisive is that the project of meta metapolitics, a concept, for example, used by Badiou, but also by some right-wing intellectual. More decisive is that the project of metapolitics in its pseudo-revolutionary gesture and its total decision for Hölderlin can only be a dead end. Certainly, if Heidegger, with the transformation of philosophy to metapolitics, professes his sympathy for the national revolution, he seems to pretend a decision which also marks with his thesis about Feuerbach, especially with the 11th performed, namely to lose philosophy or theory for the sake of a revolutionary praxis. In this sense, he one time declares around 1933 Heidegger, the literary existence is finished. <laughs> he wrote a lot after this. But totally different to Marx, Heidegger was not prepared for such a transformation. The dislocation of the philosophical discourse to her in itself problematic mytho mythology in Hölderlin's poetry is not sufficient. The mythological discourse of the gods and the last god cannot convince. Philosophy cannot begin with this. The idea that the Jewish-Christian monotheism is the presupposition for the genesis of the modern systems of total dictatorship is in the horizon of the anti-Semitic passages in the Black Notebooks a typical thought. What Heidegger pursues with it can without any problem be further unfolded by these passages. The typical gesture is that Heidegger, in his approach to national socialism and its crimes, simply projects back certain features of national socialism to the Jews. Thus, for example, the national socialists are in their racism only epigons of the Jews. They, in Heidegger's words, live for the longest time under the order of the principle of race, the Jews. Or, another misinterpretation, Hitler's self-characterization as a prophet 
is strangely reduced to the origin of Jewish prophecy, as if the Jews would be responsible for Hitler's dramatization. Certainly, influenced by the research of the Egyptologist Jan Asman in the last decades, discussions about the relation between monotheism and violence were raised. But this dimension of the discourse is not opened up by Heidegger's revanchist uttering. Hence, the theological dimension of Heidegger's thinking after the publication of the Black Notebooks has, in my eyes, one new aspect and one new problem. This new problem concerns the anti-Christian, and this means now anti-Judaistic character of this thinking. Is it possible that the death of God, the message of the madman, does not only have a des destinal signification? Do we have to understand the death of God in a different way? Are the modern systems of total dictatorship the revenants of the dead God? Heidegger, Heidegger calls Jehovah the dead God, or was the rectoral address in another sense the dead of this God? And I quote one still unpublished thing, phrase. One God, who as the unique one is not tolerating gods beneath himself, is outside of the divinity, is not God, but only a tyrant, the model forebuilt of all human dictators. This as contribution to the theology of the Old Testament. It is not anymore the Jewish-Christian monotheism, but the God of the Old Testament, which Heidegger identifies as the model of modern dictatorship. It seems that with this anti-Judaistic dimension in Heidegger's relation to Christianity and its theology, this relation as such must be interpreted anew. Thank you very much.